What it do, baby? I'm sorry. Oh, man, that was not uh, Kawhi Leonard or my Kawhi Leonard impersonation. Well, I guess it was my Kawhi Leonard impersonation, but I don't know what possessed me to start the show that way, but I did, and now you are stuck with it. Ah, welcome to Existential. Um, this episode is one of my favorite episodes because it's one of the episodes that most challenges me. I have a lot of conversations that I think challenge you and, and things that I've already worked through or things that I naturally have experienced that are a challenge to you. But this episode is me having a conversation that has been a challenge in my own life and something I've been working through and trying to figure out how to manage and think rightly and behave appropriately in this particular area of topic, of public discourse, if you will. So I'm talking to a friend of mine who is non-binary in their gender orientation. And this conversation is amazing. And I'm going to tell you up front that some of you might struggle with it. Maybe. I don't know. I shouldn't tell you that up front. I'm not, who am I to tell you what you're going to struggle with? Why don't we do this? Let's just jump into the episode right now. Episode 10. You guys can't see this right now, but I'm, I'm doing a, uh, you know, 10 with my hands. Maybe you hear that? Like a, it's like an ASMR thing. Episode 10, Existential. Let's get into it. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. What's up, folks? Today on the podcast, I have my friend Nandi. Nandi is Nandi. Say what's up. I mean, you are you already you jump right in. I like it. Go ahead. Just, yeah. Just what's yourself. up? Hey, everybody. I'm Nandi K. I'm an artist, tech professional, non-binary social justice warrior. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> and I wear there that badge proudly too. <laughs> and you and, and I'm and I'm glad you do. And that's, that's why I wanted to have you on the show because I, I just. So full disclosure for me, when I when I talk to white men about um, making space for others in the way they think and the way they behave and what they say and in listening to the voices of people of color, um, oftentimes they're kind of like expressing how hard that is to do. So mm. I will say that as a cisgendered man, and for those of you who don't know what cisgendered is, cisgendered is a, a man who identifies with his birth gender, or with their birth gender. Um, I, in this area of, of gender identification, I come to it very ignorant, so to speak. I come to it like with a sense of, I want to hear, I want to learn. Probably throughout this podcast, I may even ask questions that sort of reveal a sense of ignorance. And what I appreciate about you most is, is not only are you proud of where you stand in this conversation, but you are a person who has compassion and grace and leaves space for people to bring their ignorance as long as their intentions are right. And uh, that makes it easier. To yeah, for sure. I mean, all this language has come up in the last 
what, less than five years, at least for me, I just, Mm -hmm. I think I started identifying as non-binary about two years ago. And probably before then, in 2016, I was dating a trans person. I don't think that when we first started dating, I understood that they were trans. But kind of through that experience and seeing what they went through, I realized, one, I probably had never thought about my gender or questioned it ever in my life. Um, I didn't put a lot of stock in my gender either. So it was a real eye-opening experience, kind of like that firsthand experience of having someone different than you around. It really can open your eyes to things you probably never even thought about, especially things like gender, because we think, oh, this person was assigned female at birth you know they have a vagina that's a woman like that's something that is like so autopilot for most people that probably a lot of people don't question their gender you know unless they struggle with things like body dysphoria or now things like all this language coming up kind of to describe how you express your gender like now is one of the best times because language is changing every day and the world is becoming more except not necessarily accepting, but they know a little bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, so you say, you just said that you two years ago was when you started using um, non-binary to describe yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you just talk through like your story from like you were born? Yeah. And moved into, you know, how you began to see yourself and identify yourself. And uh, could you walk us through that journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the South. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I grew up in the church, too. Jacksonville, um, I'm Florida. Southern. Wow. Yeah, man. Okay. Duval County. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I... Grew up with just my mom, a single mom, and Southern women, like when you're a Southern woman, it's a big kind of indoctrination, I think, of what it means to be a woman in the South. Not saying it's different in the North. I don't know what it's like being raised as a Black woman in the North, but Black women in the South, that means things. There's like all these kind of things you're expected to do, you know, wear stockings, wear dresses. And I didn't really have an issue with that. Um, I think that, so my experience comes from kind of being around someone else who is trans. I dated a trans person from late 2016 to, well, actually, I guess that was late 2015 into 2016. And it really opened my eyes about gender identity. So when we started dating, Uh, me and this person, I didn't realize they were trans. Um, I'm queer. So I thought of them as kind of like a masculine lesbian. But as we kind of got to know each other more, they were like, you know, I'm trans masculine. And I just started learning about things about being trans. I started questioning more uh, my identity because I think I came out two years before that. Um, And so... I came out as gay in 2014 or so. 2016, now I'm like being confronted about gender. And I realized I actually didn't put a lot of stock in being a woman um, unless it benefited me like, oh, this box is so heavy. Um, I'm just a woman. Can someone please help me? You know, (laughs) Like when it was convenient for me, I was like happy to be a woman 
Um, but I started thinking about some of my experiences with men that were really interesting. Like when I was dating men, they would be like, oh, you're so brash, you're so harsh, you're so aggressive. They wanted this more kind of demure femininity. And I never was going to fit into that. Um, nor was I interested in fitting into that. So kind of as I learned more about this partner that I had, I started learning more about um, trans identities. Um, I realized that I actually don't feel like a gender can contain me, one gender. Um, Mm. I think I encompass, and I think everyone actually has, you know, a balance of masculine and feminine. It's just how much are you willing to admit that or lean into that. Um, And I realized like, hey, I actually don't feel like I fit into either one. Um, So I'm either both or neither. And I'm non-binary. And then maybe a year after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to change my pronouns because then it started feeling like she didn't really fit me anymore. Mm. Um, Mm. And that... And so I was like, I'm going to try it out because if you try it out, you can always go back to being she. And like, obviously, people still call me she because they see me on the outside. But I changed my pronouns about two years ago. And I was like, okay, I want to be they now. And it felt really good to me. It felt really comfortable. It felt like it wasn't boxing me in. And now, you know, I'm just a black non-binary bae. And uh, like I said, one gender can't contain me. <laughs> That's what's up. So listen, you said up until four years ago, it sounds like what I heard you saying is up until four years ago, you identified as a woman. Is that accurate? Yeah, to say? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So now, and you had a coming out as a lesbian mm-hmm. and a coming out a as- A year before that. As non-binary, so do you feel like you came yeah. out twice? Does it, were they both equally as like coming out, or was was the second mm-hmm. sort of easier because you were already out of the closet, so to speak? Oh man, I wish. I think that um, being gay is like way easier than trying to explain your not being a woman. Um, oh wow! Because we have these, yeah, much easier. People can definitely understand. Oh, you're a woman that likes women. They cannot or have a harder time grasping, okay, well, I'm not a man or a woman. Or Mm. uh, trans means things to people also. Like, I notice that when you say trans, most people think of trans women right away. And I've even had encounters online where where people assume that I'm a trans woman because I identify as trans. So... Mm. Uh, The lack of understanding, I think, around gender and around sex, which are different things, and around sexuality, those are actually all kind of separate entities. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, people kind of lump them in all together. Um, For sure. So I think that coming out was gay was, was much easier. I actually haven't even had like a conversation with, let's say, like my parents. About my gender identity, because I just don't think they would get it. I think it would be too hard for them to understand. So I know that you have talked about on social media, like the um, strain with your mother. Um, Yeah. Do you want to talk some about that, like how she responded? So she 
she her response or negative response was to you coming out as queer and she doesn't even mm-hmm. she's not even really you've not even really had conversations about your non-binary identification right yeah yeah for sure i mean so like i said i grew up in church i grew up super religious my mom was like a minister of music so okay um, well that's not not we just the very- minister of music that's black church, okay? Like, yes, it because is. Because <laughs> white white people call them worship leaders, all right. So whenever uh, I'm yes, around uh, my yes. black family, when I was leading worship, I would basically have to say I'm the minister of music, so that so people would understand what I'm saying. So so you were you were uh, yeah. in black church. Yes, I was. Yeah, I grew okay. up like Baptist. I went to churches where women couldn't wear pants. Like, real old school, yeah. And uh, when I was growing up, my mom actually seemed pretty progressive when it came to religion. You know, she had a lot of questions. She wasn't afraid to, like, go and ask, okay, what does this mean in the Bible? Like, she wasn't afraid to, Mm -hmm. like, kind of challenge thinking. But as I got older, as I grew up, um, especially, like, coming out as gay, it's been super rough I came out to my mom so many times. It was, if I could go back, I would never have done it. I wouldn't have come out. I just would have showed up with a girlfriend. Because it was traumatic. (laughs) I mean, she... (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know these, um, no shades of the Christians listening, but y'all know how y'all be. You know, um, I came out so many times that, like, I remember one time my mom said to me, do you know how I know you're not gay? Because when you're a, you were a baby, you will always go to men, right? So, like, <laughs> think about that, right? <laughs> like, think about this. My mom thinks that I'm not gay because as a baby, I would only let men hold me. Wow. Layered. Okay, right. That's so layered, so deep. Um, she told me it was a phase. Um, she's like, you know, it's just a phase. She, even when I was growing up though, like as a teenager, my mom used to accuse me, quote unquote, accuse me of being a lesbian. If I was like too friendly with my girlfriends or like, I mean, but then if I was too friendly with my guy friends, then I was promiscuous too. So it was really like no pleasing her. But once I was like really out and myself, it's been really hard. I mean, earlier this year, she called me and was like, actually, I when I first came back to L.A. this year in January, I hadn't talked to my mom in like a week. And at that point, I was talking to her about every week. Um And I was like, oh, I need to call my mom. And when I was thinking about calling her, she sent me a text and sent me like this text prayer that was like, I pray for your deliverance. Now, I shouldn't have taken the bait, but I had to know. (laughs) So I called her. (laughs) I was like, so what do I need to be delivered from? Hmm. And at first she was like, oh, nothing. Like, I'm just saying in general. And then she was like, but homosexuality for one. Hmm. And I don't identify as a Christian anymore. I don't identify as a religious at all. I think Jesus is super dope. But I just told her, I was like, Mom, like, God's not sending people to hell uh, for being gay anymore. That's what I said. I also don't believe in hell anymore either. So, like, I was like, Mom, like, 
you know, God's not sending people to hell for being gay anymore. And she got really mad. Um, but I meant to like kind of incense her in that way. And she was like, well, it says da 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 in the Bible. And I'm like, that's all cool. But like, are you God? Mm. And that really shook her. And she's like, well, are you God? And I'm like, no, but I am me. You know, and I think I have probably a better idea about what my relationship is with God uh, as God exists to me. Because, like, from what I know growing up in church, and I, you know, when you grow up in church, you can't help but absorb all that knowledge. For sure. And I'm like, God doesn't seem like he would be throwing people into the pits of hell. Like, my mom still thinks homosexuality is a demon. She thinks I'm, like, possessed mm. by a homosexuality demon that makes me gay. Yeah. Um. So it's hard. I stopped speaking to my mom in May of this year. Um. After, basically, like, it got to the point where every now and then, like, it would be cool with my mom and then we would have a conversation and, like, it would be so bad. I would be completely undone, completely anxious, shaken. I was, like, thinking of killing myself every time I talked mm-hmm. to my mom. Mm-hmm. Like, because she was just so negative and she wasn't going to accept me for any other way than she wanted me to be. So it's been, like, six months since I talked to her. Um which is not easy, but, you know, I do feel a lot better not having kind of someone in my life who won't, who refuses to accept me for who I yeah, am. Yeah, so. for sure. I, I bet that has to feel really um, uncomfortable because on the one hand, mom is mom and mom is always going to be mom. So the relationship that we have with, right. with people who we gave birth to us and who we've lived with. It's always going to be important and special. But on the other hand, when that relationship becomes kind of oppressive to me expressing who I am, it has to also then feel good at the same time to be freed from oppressive space, regardless of whether that's someone I'm related to or have grown up with or not. You know, so absolutely. Yeah. I, thanks for sharing that. I mean, that that story, hopefully people are really yeah. deeply listening to that because that's that's a gift to all of us, what you just shared with us about what it means to be you and how you experience relationships, um, like you said, with your mom. Now, I'm curious, because you mentioned yeah. your relationship with God, and I am now utterly fascinated mm-hmm. by the way you view God. And, and I love talking to people who no longer identify as Christian, because it has become very complicated to identify mm-hmm. as Christian, certainly in America. But you said Jesus is dope, which I think across the board, I've yet to talk to anybody who would say anything other than that. How do you view God? How do you how do you interact with God? Um, Do you use a pronoun for God? So, mm, I don't use pronouns for God. And I think that kind of. I mean, like, straight up, a lot of it is in the Bible, right? Like, it says that God can be really anything. I think that it's really funny that people think um, that they can use, like, human reasoning to rationalize God. Right. I'm like, that's not a God. Right. Like, if if a human person can, like, rationalize this, like, giant universal creator kind of being, like, that's not a God at all. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, at least. 
that's not a God if a person can rationalize it. Um, since God can be anything, to me, I see God and I see trans people as probably, since God, we're created in God's image, mm-hmm. I see trans people as probably the clearest uh, personification of God. I mean, like, if God is all-encompassing, like, trans people are the closest thing we'll ever see mm-hmm. to, like, a real reflection of God. Um, I think God is non-binary. I think God uses gender-neutral mm-hmm. pronouns. Um, I think that I kind of, my relationship with God is really more about my relationship with people. Um, because if, like, people are God's image and are God's representation on earth, then it's how I deal with people is how I commute and, like, be in relationship mm. with God. Mm. Um, and so I try to, I try not to judge. I try to not be, you know, judgmental. I try to allow space for everyone to exist. Uh in the way that they want to, as long as, you know, it's not hurting anybody, killing anybody. Mm. Um, But yeah, like to me, God is like this giant being that I'll never be able to understand. But I also realized that like he carefully created every person that I come into contact Mm. with. And so like, that's not, I don't take Mm. that lightly that like people are God's representation. Uh, our personification. Man, listen, I hope that any Christian out there listening to this who threw your phone across the room because you've never heard God expressed like that, <laughs> welcome back to the podcast. That was amazing, Nandi. Thanks for sharing that. I, I think it's so important for people to recognize that we have these anthropomorphic ideas about who God is that came from a patriarchal society that convinced us that God was only this thing. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you that when human beings are trying to control the narrative of divine things, it's always going to be messy and convoluted. And we're always going to be trying to do a tug of war with God to pull them in our image and make them exactly like us, which is why, I mean, you know, we, we've seen this with white Jesus and how Absolutely. for so long the image of Jesus is white. And this isn't the podcast to get into all that and the principles of, of, of what that is, but I just, I, I want to affirm what you just said about God. And I, and I think it's beautiful. And I think that God, the divine creator of everything, is able to stand with you in the space that you're in and commune with you and show you things that the rest of us haven't seen. And it's why it's so important that we hear each other's voices because you know something about God that I don't. Mm. And I got to take the time to listen to you um, when you're talking about God. So thanks for sharing that. That was, that was really, really dope. I really appreciate it. Now I want to move into some, like, I guess what I'll, I'm going to call this like sort of mean tweets. And and I want you to respond to some of these things that, that, that go around on the internet. One of them I saw just today and it was a picture of Greta, the environmental activist and a couple of old school, like war veterans. And it said, your generation is going to decide the future. Your generation can't even decide if you're a boy or a girl. How do you yeah. respond to me, that particular mean tweet? 
Well, why do I have to choose? I mean, I think of it mm. in terms of like rich people get to have whatever they want. They get to have all their money and not pay taxes too. So why do I have to make a choice <laughs> in gender? Like, why do I have to make a choice in a uh, boy or girl? Why are the choices so limited? Why are there only two choices? You know, I have to ask, why are these the only two choices? I can, I actually decide from day to day who I'm going to be. You know, I make a joke when I'm getting dressed because I just started wearing wigs again because it's cold and I have short hair. And um, I make this joke when I get ready in the morning that I'm like transforming into a woman before I go to work mm. when I wear um, <laughs> to keep your head warm. <laughs> when I wear wigs. Yeah, to keep my head warm. Exactly. Because even it's function, I'm just like, oh, it's cold. My head is cold. Like I'm just going to throw on a wig. It's not about like being this super feminine character but like when I wear wigs I gotta wear makeup because the color like wash out my skin and stuff like that so I do make this joke about how like I'm like oh yes I gotta make my transformation into a woman now uh, before I go to work so so you're kind of talking now about gender as a construct which is something I wanted to get into so since we're there and before we get to the next mean tweet um what do you say to the person who would push back on gender as a construct and say that God created male and female? What What is your response to that? Well, so number one, were you there when God created male and female? No. Number two, male and female is sex, not gender. Okay. Mm. Sex and gender mm. are very different things. Sex is biological. Um, and usually when people say, sex, they're actually talking about genitals because they're not taking into account the brain, which there's a lot of studies that show that like trans women actually do have the brains of women, regardless of what uh, genitalia they're born with. So Mm. usually when people say sex, they're talking about genitals, right? When they say Mm. gender, they're Mm. also talking about genitals. Uh, Gender is actually expression. Gender is how you choose Mm. to express yourself. Um, so I sometimes choose to wear a wig and transform into a woman. And sometimes I choose to be my kind of very gender neutral self with my short haircut and makeup Mm. and just like a t-shirt and jeans. Um, I don't think that also these people who are saying this have our biologists or geneticists. (laughs) and even have like, you know, license to speak on gender or sex, you know, because there's all these studies. Uh, I don't know if you saw, there's this uh, thing called a blob that just went on display in like a French museum. It has 750 sexes. Wow. Sexes, not genders, sexes. So when people try to limit it to two, I'm like, you need to go do some scientific research, boo. Because also that leaves out intersex people as well, which boy and girl leave out intersex people. And intersex people are kind of being subjected to these horrible surgeries as babies that decide their genders for them. So, yeah, I've heard heard of that. Yeah. So I think there, there was an actress several years ago. I think it was Jamie Lee Curtis, actually, who there was rumors going around that she was born with uh, both. Uh, both parts mm-hmm. and that her parents had to decide 
which is an yeah. interesting thing, right? So because isn't that crazy? Yeah. So your parents have to decide. Parents deciding. Right. Having having had no, your personality hasn't developed. It was it was having had no sense of like how you would behave or who you would become or any of those things. Had to decide mm-hmm. on the spot about a baby which one of those parts to keep. So we certainly do have within our our consciousness the idea that it's possible that physically human beings can be born with both. And then it, if a parent yeah. can choose at that point, what does that tell us about gender? Facts. Yeah. Facts, facts, facts. Because, like, when I look at Jamie Lee Curtis, I've always seen Jamie Lee Curtis as very androgynous. So... Hmm. I I don't I don't think she looks particularly womanly or feminine, quote unquote, in the kind of typical definition of the word. But I also Mm -hmm. don't think she looks overly masculine either. She's always had a short haircut. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think of her like wearing like these crazy like gowns. She's always wearing something very kind of neutral. So that's pretty interesting. And it's like you said, like parents are making this decision based off someone they don't even know or they wow. don't know who they'll be. Yeah. Yeah. So then that thanks that's I'm I'm into it. That's dope. That's super dope. Well the yeah. next one that's kind of a mean tweet ish kind of thing was one I saw that said um if there is no gender then there is no pay gap. Um how do you respond to that sort of ideology being that, you know, there is a push for equal pay, that women are paid significantly right. less than men are. But when the conversation becomes, yeah. it's a construct and, and some of the things that we're saying, people who fail to recognize any sort of nuance in conversations um, will get very, Obviously. you know, dogmatic. So what, what would you say to, to those folks? So, um, you know, what else is a social construct? Race. If I died and a white girl died and a hundred and something years later, they dug up our bones, they wouldn't know if I was black and they Mm. wouldn't know if she was black, Mm. you know? So like, okay, gender's not real. So there's no pay gap. Okay. Race is not real. Explain that. Mm. Like social constructs are still constructs. Just because it doesn't actually physically exist doesn't mean that these giant empires can't create them and kind of use them to marginalize people. Yeah. So it's this article that's been going around uh, Lupita Nyong'o who says she didn't know that she was part of a race called black until she moved to the U S because she, until she moved to the West, like she had no idea that she was part of a race called black. So I saw that. Yeah. Because race is not really real, right? Race isn't this thing. It's like just because we have the same skin color doesn't mean we're the same at all. But these things still very much exist and very much kind of rule the way the world works around us. So there is a pay gap. We see it. We have celebrations throughout the year, days of kind of uh, observance of the white woman's pay gap, the black woman's pay gap, the Hispanic and indigenous person's pay gap. Like, it absolutely exists just as much as, you know, these people want to cling to being white. I mean, because if race is not real, being white is not real. And that kind of, 
like, then what what would they say to that? You know, it's like, okay, well, being white's not real. I bet they wouldn't love that either. (laughs) But but certainly the construct still do have an effect on how we interact with each other socially. So, you know, whether they are constructs that are divinely ordered or constructs that are created by empires to control and to limit the flow of power and resource and Mm -hmm. education, regardless of of where they came from, they're there and they do have an effect. So, yeah, I I totally I agree with you on that now. Let yeah, me I mean, ask trans you women are I, still getting. I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. like trans, trans women are, are still getting killed at crazy mm. high rates, you know. Mm. So when you say like gender's not real, but there's people who are being killed for existing, like black trans women, especially, like this year, over 300 trans people were murdered. Oh my God. You know, 20. I think we're at 29 for black trans women um, out of that number. So people are being killed for existing. Like I think of someone like Islan Nettles who got killed in the Bronx, I think, in New York. She was just walking home with her friend and some guy tried to hit on her, found out she was trans and beat her to death. She was just minding her business. Right. So you can say it's not real, but the consequences are very real. So it's hard to deny it when the evidence is there that, you know, it's very real for people. So with that, I want to transition to something. I I was going to say something else, but what you just said uh, makes me think about a conversation you and I had back when the Dave Chappelle special came out. Um, Oh, yeah. And I know that there was a lot of he took a lot of grief for that. Some people were saying it was brilliant social commentary. I think a lot of it was actually more so social commentary than it was even comedy. And I did think These that it was, facts. and I did think a lot of it was, I'm I'm watching him like, man, this, you know, what he's saying, I can't argue with. where I think you and I um, talked and where I would love to hear your perspective is when he talked about the LBGTQ community um, and the idea that a person can be the butt of the joke on the stage and the butt of the joke in real life is I think where you and I would agree that some of what he said was problematic, but I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on it. Did you think any of it was funny? And what of it specifically did you go, yeah, he shouldn't be saying? So one thing I thought that he said that, well, first, I I really believe that like comedians should speak from their own experience, first Mm. and foremost. Um, And I Mm. think like, People like Kevin Hart, like who I'm not a huge fan of anymore, but I read his book or I listened to his audio book and he talks about how that was a big thing for. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he talks about how his stand up got way better when he started speaking from his personal experience. Right. It it really helped him. It really helped him tap into his audience. Right. So Dave Chappelle who has a really interesting story, especially like when you think about marginalized groups and like the whole thing with the Chappelle show and how he realized that he was the butt of the joke in his own show. And so Mm. he left, he walked away from this huge deal. And guess what? They said, oh, Dave Chappelle's crazy. Dave Chappelle's on crack, you know, Mm. Uh, because he realized he was being laughed at and not being laughed with. So with this Mm. special first, I don't think Mm. there was a lot of jokes. I would agree with you there. Like, where are the jokes? Um, 
One thing that I thought he said that was pretty funny, even though I do think that he should like not be talking about it, is that car um, example of like with LGBT and like everybody doesn't really rock with the T. That's accurate. Like Mm -hmm. I've experienced a lot of transphobia from like cis gay men, um, lesbians, you know, like there's definitely transphobia present in the LGBT community. That's truly valid and accurate but again like why are you talking about this right Dave Chappelle Mm -hmm. like what's your stake and Mm -hmm. then there's the whole punching down right so trans people have it hard enough like just like black people have it hard enough if a white person got on stage and said this stuff about black people that Dave Chappelle joked about about trans people there would be huge outrage yeah for sure period yeah no it would be huge outrage from everybody. But because no one cares, right? Exactly. But no one cares about trans people. Mm. Trans people are like literally just fighting to just exist to be recognized. Like literally, they just roll back the Trump administration. Just roll back all these protections for LGBT folks, including like medical care, which is already hard enough for trans people to get medical care, proper medical care. So. To kind of like punch down, I think it's in poor taste. Mm-hmm. I think that there's ways to be funny without punching down. And like we also see comedians like I think Eddie Murphy has t- addressed it and said, we don't need to punch down. Why would we be right. doing that? And that's recent since the day. He's like, I'm not on board with Dave Chappelle. You don't need to punch down. Mm-hmm. I think um, the other comedian, I want to say it's George Carlin talked about it a lot before also when he died before he died on a Larry King show I watched the interview um punching down is whack why would you punch down people who already have a why would you make fun of people who already have a hard time especially if it's not your group of people yeah and especially when you like what you just said about how many trans folks have actually been killed just for being and existing I think that's where to me, that's where I felt the most sense of angst over what he was saying was that these people are losing their lives. It's not just that they're like, you know, made fun of even in life. It's that they're actually being targeted and harmed violently in real life. And if comedy is supposed to lift us to a place of checking out of the horrors of life sometimes, then mm-hmm. if a trans person's watching that Dave Chappelle special, you don't even get to check out there. So like you said, what you said that really broke my heart was when you said no one cares. And that to me was just right. so disturbing and so honest, but just so like, gosh, we, we gotta, we have to do better, man, when it comes to this. And hopefully our conversation now is sort of helping with that. You know, I think yeah. the, the whole reason behind Existential as a podcast is for us to see people as human. And not as issues mm. and, and to hear from people whose stories are different than ours so that we can go, oh, right. there's a human being in the middle of that label or that construct or that opinion or that mm. even political identity. There is a human being there right. who I can hear and listen to and identify with. So, man, it's gosh, uh, everything you're saying is so, hopefully I, I hope everyone in the entire world hears this because I think it's so important. And think it's so good. Yeah, I mean, when we were yeah, when we were talking about it on social media, 
I remember very specifically that I mentioned, you know, that trans people are getting killed. And someone on your post, I don't remember who it was, said 29 people is an epidemic. So, right. Okay, let me, let so me like, just say this. this. Is let me like say this literally here for, this anybody, level for anybody who follows me on social media. Let me say this very clearly. Um, it says friend next to everyone there, but they are not all my friends. Okay, I just want to be clear right. about that. If anyone on any yeah. of my social media has said something like that to you, said some crazy stuff, just know that it's likely they're that they're not my road dogs. We don't we don't ride or die together. Okay, so and, right. and I'm sorry to whoever said that because I know you and I both know that my so that especially my Facebook page can get out of control with what the stuff that people say. And it's outlandish. Oh, for sure. And I definitely, that's why I didn't say it was your friend. Yeah, that's why I didn't say it was your friend. Because also then I did kind of become friends with someone from that post also, Sarah. Because mm-hmm. she works near me, which is like a crazy small world. And we had great conversations yeah, kind of about this. And I got a chance to, yeah, I got a chance to kind of educate her about kind of those issues and say, you know, guess what? You don't really get to decide this is offensive Mm. because it doesn't affect you. Wow. Like white people don't get to say, well, I don't think that's not, I don't think that's racist. Well, how would you know? Exactly. Have you ever experienced racism? Right. Right. Which is again. No, you haven't. So yeah, exactly. Some would say they have, which is a conversation (laughs) for another day. Um, But but certainly, but I, I love what you brought up is that the person experiencing the pain is the person who we should allow to speak about those things. But our society is accustomed to allowing the person inflicting the pain to also be the person who gets to tell the story about what happened. And that's what's so backwards. And that's what I am so appreciative of this generation trying to turn around, trying to flip that thing on its head and say, no, you don't get to be the one who inflicts pain and then gets to share the story about it. We get to share our story right. as people. Who've been yeah, because the power of narrative. Yes, absolutely. Because like, think about like the power of narrative, and like, uh, I'm sure probably a lot of people who are listening have r- at least read a little bit of the people's history of the United States, where like Howard Zinn actually tackles that at the opening of the book, is saying like, you never hear the story from the side of the people who were colonized. You only Mm -hmm. hear the story of the colonizer and they have changed that narrative. I mean, think about Thanksgiving, like, you know, we're like about to come up on Thanksgiving and I'm like, Thanksgiving was a massacre. And yet Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving is about family and what we're thankful for. I'm like, "Mm, something's not lining up here. So do you not celebrate Thanksgiving? Um, I shouldn't say celebrate. I shouldn't say celebrate. I mean, I'm going to eat food regardless. <laughs> yes, but my friend actually, <laughs> my friend started calling it Mashed Potato Day, and I've mm. adopted that. I think Mashed Potato Day is a great thing because are we really celebrating? Like, what are we really celebrating when we think about Thanksgiving? Like, what right. is that about? Right. Family, yeah. food? That's really what it's about. So I've taken to calling it uh, think, uh, Mashed Potato Day now. And I will be eating a lot of food and yeah. I am visiting family. Um, so like I participate in like the festivities, but I definitely am not celebrating Thanksgiving. Well, you, it sounds like you, you found know. a way to redeem I'm, it. I'm still posting about. Absolutely. I mean, there's there are definitely redeeming things, but like 
I just kind of stumbled over some of my old posts from Thanksgiving a few years ago about the DAPL pipeline. And Mm -hmm. I wrote this status that just said, like, remember that America is at war with this indigenous people Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. while you're eating. Wow. While you're talking to your family. Like, remember that literally the United States is at war with the indigenous people of this country. And like that, we don't, we haven't even touched the tip of what's happening to indigenous people here. Most people have no clue about what indigenous uh, Americans go through at the hands of like the United States. So I had a lot of friends who went to North Dakota when it was happening you know, we remember they were spraying them with freezing water and freezing mm. temperatures. And this is all while Thanksgiving was going on. on. So like, I always encourage people of like, don't forget. Don't forget what this actually is while you're also celebrating with your family. Yeah. And, and people have such you a can hard hold time both with that. Things, but I think people struggle to hold two things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do. Yeah. It needs to be very binary. And Part of our thing in in America is is these sort of like Christian. And I'm, I'm using quotations, and no one can see that because this is a podcast. But I'm using mm-hmm. quotations when I say Christian nation is that we have come to accept yeah. conquering and violence as a part of the divine plan for the people who God chooses. And I'll just real briefly uh, say this: um, not too long ago, I was singing a song. Uh, at a church, and, and I'll say the song. The song is called um, "Do It Again," and the opening line is "Walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall." And it's it's hearkening back to the Battle of Jericho in the in the Bible. Well, as I yeah. as I the more I've been thinking about this and reading about you know history and the, even history of, of biblical narratives, I go that story is celebrating the genocide of another people group. The the God's chosen people went to somebody else's town where they were raising their families and their children and they were living their lives. They may have, you know, whatever may have been true about their society and how they acted, they still were human beings. And the Israelites went in and wiped them out completely. So I'm standing on stage, I'm singing this song about the power of God to help the people he chooses. And I was really struggling and I had to find a way to redeem something from that song. And for me, it was like, well, what is redeemable is the fact that I do believe that God is benevolent and good and that he can help. Um, And in the same way, I think when you're talking about Thanksgiving, it's like there is a, when we sit down at the table, we may not be thinking about it, but that holiday does hearken back to a genocide. Absolutely. And I think in the Bible, we see so much genocide. I mean, the Bible is full of genocide. Yes, it is. (laughs) Absolutely. It is. It's chock full of it. And that's something that we haven't really thought a lot about and reconciled a lot is that that's there. So as Christians or people of faith or whatever your your religion is, I think, or non-religion, I think we all we always have to be able to hold two things that are true and find some way of still living and being and existing in the midst of that. So I think that's kind of what Thanksgiving starts to represent. But let me ask you one last question before I let you go. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to keep you all day, although okay. I could, cause I'm, I'm obviously, I don't know if you can tell, but I love this conversation. Um, so this is great. Now I'm enjoying it too. One of the, one of the areas where like I've had 
a real question and probably might even say I disagree um, is when we talk about Dave Chappelle brought it up. He said if LeBron James as an athlete decided that he identified as a woman and wanted to play in the WNBA, it would be unfair. Mm-hmm. I agree that it would be unfair. Mm-hmm. I watched, a, I saw something that you posted mm-hmm. once and I was like, Nandi, I don't, <laughs> I saw it. And I'm like, I could not wait to ask you about it. <laughs> but you said, you said um, it was something to the degree of just, uh, it was almost to the degree of saying to the person who is, who is biologically female that loses to a, a biological male in like some sort of wrestling match fight harder bitch is I think what you said. <laughs> so, so like, I'm yeah. trying to understand like how, cause that's the one area where I'm like, that just doesn't seem fair to me, but I want to hear your perspective on that. Mm. So first I want to ask you, cause it, when you say that, right, what it sounds like is that you think that women are inherently weaker than men. Physically. I mean, yeah. I, I, Are you a doctor? I'm not a doctor. No, but like I, well, I, I well, just, well, well. I've, I've yet to encounter. Okay, all right, Nandi, Nandi, Nandi. Do you actually not mm-hmm. believe? Yeah, this is good. <laughs> not, do you? No, I don't. I'm like, I don't believe that women are inherently weaker. Absolutely not. I think that society's uh boxing in of what a woman should be the at the construct or like the vision or thing to live up to of being a woman says that a woman needs to be weaker i hmm. believe that so you um, think the construct i don't think that Absolutely, because there's a lot of women who kind of live in this, and this is a whole other conversation, but like they live in this perpetual victimhood mm-hmm. of being a woman. Well, because men did it, and it like kind of skirts a lot of accountability, but uh, kind of to stay on topic, one, competition is inherently unfair. Mm. Period. Dot. Somebody's always going to be faster than you stronger than you, have more money than you, afford Mm. better trainers than you, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So, like, even to me, the fact that um, sports are split up by gender, that's just something to reinforce the binary. Because if you don't want to fight a woman, sure, maybe don't fight a woman, but I'm sure Serena Williams will have no issues destroying most of the tennis players who are men who've been considered great. For sure. And I'm Ronda sure Rousey and Ronda Rousey like, would, no question. Would, would would body slam me. Like and I and I understand that. And I think I think what you said that I, right. I most resonate with and, and I think that competition is inherently unfair. I love that. I think I think that is true. Um I think there's all kinds of things that come into play when it comes to competition. But you know on my TV right now is highlights from a football game. And I kind of think about mm-hmm. like last night I was watching a football game and my and my one of my daughters said, um, I would love to play football. It looks so fun. But she said that in a way that's like she was almost reserved to the fact that she would never be able to play football. Um Ain't in, that in her, something. Right, right. And I and I just think part of it is to me, is you don't think that it's dangerous? Like in terms of like, because we've never seen obviously Why? we've never seen a woman playing football and we and maybe someday we will. I don't know. I, I think you're right. When it, when the way we think, I think about this is just different. And part of my life experience probably comes into play when you're talking about like, you know, women I've encountered, what I've seen, 
Yeah, I think that patriarchy is like really shapes like our view, especially when it comes to sports, because we see like, for example, like let's say LeBron James is like, I'm a trans woman and LeBron James wants to like medically transition. People have no idea what that is Mm -hmm. really like. Uh, Mm -hmm. Trans women who medically transition, their hormones are basically almost completely depleted. They're actually a lot weaker they lose muscle mass. Like your actual body changes when you medically transition. It's the same thing for mm. trans men who transition. Your jaw gets squarer. You get more muscle mass. You know, you get more of that like V-shaped mm. body. So people don't understand what it is. And also to me, I'm just like, how can men think that women are weaker when they have babies? Sorry, I'm just I mean, like a man could yeah, never. <laughs> like, let's be very real. Never. Like, and I think a lot never of women man, would yeah. also agree. Like, a man being sick with a cold and a woman being sick with a cold, it looks completely different. Like, a man is down for the count really? at any sign of sickness. Women are literally still living their whole lives schedule packed. So it's like, right? Okay, we have these ideas, but where is it actually supported in experience? Like where, yeah, where I mean, we see like, my evidence you know saying, And what you're saying now is that there are like, you know, there are categories that we sort of all fall into. Like when you talk about a man being able to have a baby, it certainly it's like it's 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 with it's woven into our ideas of culture that a, that men are babies when we get sick. So how could we ever actually have a baby? Which I agree with. And I think yeah. when it on, on the other side of it, like the idea that like most of you know, the, the, the strongest man in the world um, is stronger than the strongest woman in the world is also a, a, one of those things that falls into our way of thinking. And I, I, I want to keep, keep sitting with this and I, and I want to continue to hear your perspective on this as we continue in our relationship beyond just the podcast, yeah, because sure. this is, it's important that the conversation continue because the last thing I'll ask you is I think there is a place that, um, you as an activist and as a person who's an advocate for equality and inclusion and justice would say, I, here's a place I'd like to see us get to. Um, I think that's important. I think that, that us getting there is a dialogue. So where would you say is the place that you'd like to see society get to when it comes to this conversation we're having about gender, sexuality, how people identify themselves? Um, I think I would like for society to just get to a place of let me mind my own business because what someone else does <laughs> does not affect me. Um, <laughs> Cause I think that's like the whole oh, thing is like, place. Oh, well, yeah. Because it's like, how does me being gay affect Susie in Oklahoma? Right. How does, right. you know, um, one of my favorite trans activists, L. Hearns, like, how does L being a trans woman affect you in Oakland? Like, how does it change your mm-hmm. quality of life? How does it affect your quality? It doesn't. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. affect your life at all. So if people could at least get, and I think that's the bare minimum. Of like, how about you mind your business mm. and worry about your own life? <laughs> if people spend more time worrying about their own lives and not the lives of other people, I feel like a lot of the problems we have now would not even exist. 
Yeah, really well said. I appreciate that. And, and, and I'll do, you know, everybody listening, let's, if we adopt just to start with an ethic of mind your business, I think that we are moving in the right direction. Nadi, thanks so much for, for being, being on the show. Like this is, this was so great. I'm, I'm really, really excited to share this with people and all of you listening. Hopefully you are um, sharing this with other folks. And if you're, certainly if you're a person out there who um, know someone or, or even someone in your family, you may not even know someone in your family is actually dealing with this. I think this would be something good to share and listen to as a resource. So Nandi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate you. you. I'm glad me. that, uh, man, anytime I want you to come back. I'm glad we, I'm glad we're friends. Man. Oh man. Oh man. Conversations like that are rare where there's a conversation between two people from two completely different ways of, of living, I guess, is one way of saying it. Um, two different backgrounds, two, two different perspectives on the world. But two people who can have such admiration and respect for each other. I think it's just a rare thing. And I, was, I feel really blessed to have had Nandi on the show. Nandi, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your truth and being honest and vulnerable about who you are and about what that means in the world around us. Um, you who listened this far, thank you for listening. Because I'm sure some, a lot of what you heard, especially for some of the more conservative, I'm not talking politically, but conservative, um, I guess, socially or religiously, for some of you that are a little bit more on the conservative side, I'm sure that a lot of this was challenging, but you pushed yourself and good job to you. Uh, thank you, Comfort Fit, for the music. This song is called Sorry. This is the last episode of Existential for 2019. So thank you for you who listened to all 10 episodes. Now, here's what I'd like for you to do. Number one, I'd like you to subscribe if you haven't already. Number two, I'd like you to rate and review if you've not done that. But thirdly, I'm going to ask something that might be a little bit big for some of you to do. But those of you that are on social media, could you do me a favor and use the, use, use the hashtag Existential and tell us what was your favorite episode? You can go, my favorite episode was episode three, and here's why, or episode four, whatever the episode was that was your favorite, hashtag existential. My favorite episode was blank, and then tell us a little bit of why that was your favorite episode. I would just love to get the feedback before we go into season two next year, what I'm calling season two for next season. I'm just stoked to have been through this, these 10 episodes with you. I know some of you listen to every single episode, and I thank you so much for that. And for the last time in 2019, I want to thank you for one last thing. I want to thank you for being a person who is contending for a better world, one conversation at a time. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, you guys. Peace. Thank you.